They say the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. Well, you, you and I, we were meant to be free. And now God invites you to a soul-shaking, chain-breaking, life-giving adventure with your closest friends. We will share our stories of struggle and bravely explore the uncharted places of our soul. We will do this together and promise one another we won't stop until we are free. Liberation awaits. Today, freedom calls out your name. This is the way, the new way to be free. What's up, Liquid Church? How you doing today? So good to see you on this beautiful fall morning. And um, if you're watching from any of our five locations, we want to say welcome. We're so glad you're here, especially those of you that are joining us online. As we are in part three of our series, Freeway, the not-so-perfect guide to freedom, where we look at how do we leave shame and guilt and regret in the past and move forward into the limitless future that God has for us. So we're going to walk in that direction today. Now, if you've been following along with us uh, in this series, uh, maybe you've been uh, going through the workbook or through your group, you know that this is like a six-step process, right? And so two weeks ago, Pastor Tim took us through the first step, which was awareness, to be able to, the ability to kind of slow down, Take stock of what's going on in your life and be able to hear what God is saying to you. Awareness. Uh, last week, Tim looked at uh, discovery. How do we start to kind of look at our story? Kind of, you know, look underneath the couch cushion and start to see what are those issues down there that we need to be aware of. And as you're sharing your story with your group, I'm sure people are saying, me too. I struggle with that as well. Today, we're actually going to be looking at ownership. How do we take responsibility for our response to life or circumstances? Now, this can be actually the hardest Week, So I want to encourage you, if you're starting to feel like this feels uncomfortable, this is hard, don't disengage. Lean in because God has something for you. It always gets, there's always a breakthrough that needs to happen. So I want to encourage you to kind of push through that. And then next week, Pastor Tim's going to talk about forgiveness, acceptance. Step six is freedom. So we're going to look at freedom and then we're going to celebrate freedom with baptism. And baptism is where we get together as Christ followers. We celebrate the new life that God has done in our hearts and in our lives. We do that through, uh, through basically saying, you know what? We can leave regret and shame and, and guilt in the past because what Jesus has done for us, we celebrate that. So if you have never been baptized, or as you're kind of going through freeway, you're starting to realize, you know what? There's some things that I just need to like celebrate that I'm free from. And, and now is your time. We've got a baptism bag in the Next Steps kiosk. I want to encourage you to go there, pick one up. And um, you'll be all set for baptism. It's an exciting, exciting time. Now, last week, Pastor Tim uh, took us to the couch and <coughs> talked about how sometimes when we open up the cushions, we start to see what's underneath the covers. Some of the stuff is kind of gross. It's kind of messy. But before it can get better, sometimes it actually has to get a little bit messier. And Jesus sometimes leads us through that on that journey of discovery in order to move towards healing. And so today we're going to continue that journey to the next step, which is ownership. Ownership's the idea that, you know what, I see my stuff, but now I'm going to take responsibility for my story. This may be the hand that I was dealt, but I am going to use that to the best of my ability, ownership. We may not be able to change our circumstances, but we can change our response to those circumstances. 
me ask you this. How many of y'all remember these? You see these? They're crayons, or crayons, depending on who you talk to, or who corrects me. But, uh, but you know, these are, you know, crayons. You know, my kids, they play with these. I played with these when I was a kid. And uh, I got the, uh, <coughs> the school supply list for my daughter's school, and I was looking through the list, and it said a box of crayons. I'm thinking, oh, this is great. We have tons of crayons. We don't need to buy a box. And then my wife looks at me and goes, have you seen the kids' box of crayons recently? No. And so I went over to take a look, and I opened up the box, and this is what I saw in those box of crayons. As you can see, some of them are stripped. Some of them are broken. Some of them actually have bite marks, if you look uh, close enough. Um, you know, I think it was getting close to snack time, and either my kids or their friends kind of got hungry. And as I'm kind of looking at this crayon box, I kind of had this uh, revelation that, you know, life can be a little bit like a box of crayons. Not like the fresh kind you get at the store, but more like this. Where in our lives, sometimes we have experiences that leave us broken, that leave us smashed, that kind of strip us of our dignity, that strip us of any kind of sense of who we are. And we, we, we are these broken, smashed up pieces that just seem like we can't move forward with our lives. And we, we can easily get stuck there. And, and rather than move into the future that God has for us, and what's so incredible, like uh, this past week I was going through my freeway notebook. I was going through the workbook. It kind of talked about these kind of ideas in, in one of the pages. And I want to share that with you here, where it basically asks this question. If your life was a car, how do you treat it? Do you own it? Do you rent it? Do you borrow it? Do you lease it? Or are you stealing it? How many of you checked off stealing, by the way? Okay. I'm just taking mental notes when I judge you. So, I'm kidding. Grace wins. So, you know, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm looking through my book, and I'm reading through it, and so I actually checked off leasing here. And the reason why is, I feel like the future will be better in ministry, marriage, parenting, my goals and dreams, but I'm afraid of taking the actions I need today to get there, because it feels daunting. It feels hard. It, like, it's all on me, and what if I fail, or it falls apart, or I lose something important? like my family or, or, or something in those lines. And then they had this other question, which direction do you want to go in? Do you, do you want to go back in the messy past or do you want to go into the limitless future? And I was reading through this, and this is what I wrote. I wrote forward, of course, but regrets and negative self-talk pull me back to the past and getting stuck there. Do I have what it takes to move us, my family, and myself to the next level or the next step on the journey? Will I trust in God honestly? I'm kind of afraid to. And I think that's where many of us end up. We're, we're kind of stuck in this present. And we're, we're kind of stuck between we know that there's a better future for us, a better destiny that God has for us, but there's this past that seems to pull us because things that have happened to us that were done to us or, or maybe even things that we have done keep us stuck there. Now, I want you to hear, hear me. I want to be really clear about this. I don't want to minimize what's happened to you. Because I know for some of you, you have had earthquake-shaking moments that have left you broken and crushed and bruised, and you're still trying to disentangle yourself from that. But here's where I want to kind of push you a little bit. In order for you to get into that limitless future, there's something here that you need to own, so you need to move forward. And part of that is you need to, you need to confront what I call, and this is, again, not to be flippant, not to be trivial, but I call them the five bummer dudes. Any of you ever seen The Big Lebowski with Jeff Bridges? It's a classic in American cinema. And uh, 
anytime something bad would happen in the Big Lebowski, he'd be like, bummer, man, right? Bummer, man, lost $12 million. Bummer, man. So I like dude because he is the dude, right? So bummer dude. So we have these bummer dudes that we kind of experience in our life that we can't really control. They kind of come upon us. Uh, for instance, you know, you talk to a friend of yours and say, they say to you, you know, I had to leave work early this past week. And you're like, oh, that's great. What'd you do? You'd go to the beach, uh, go hang out. And they're like, no, I had, to, I had to go put my dog down. Oh, that sucks, man. Bummer, dude. Or you talk to your neighbor or friend, they're like, you know, uh, I had, I just, my, my transmission just went in my car. It's $2,500 that I don't have. And you're, you're probably thinking, oh, man, dude, that's a, that's a bummer. I'm so sorry. And you know, I wish in those moments I had the power to resurrect your dog. I wish I had the, the power to, to give you, uh, you know, the money that you need or to be able to fix your transmission, but I don't. But these are the things that are just kind of always in the background. They're always there. We don't always focus on them, but sometimes they have their way of kind of uh, coming into our world. And there's five of them I want to look at. The first one is that life is unfair. Life is unfair. You know, you work early mornings and late nights to try to get that promotion. You're working on weekends. You're pushing your vacation back. And then you find out your nephew's, your boss's nephew weasels his way in, takes your promotion. Life's not fair. The second one is that people will hurt you. People will hurt you. And it doesn't matter if it's with the best of intentions or the worst of intentions. People hurt us. They disappoint us. They let us down. And it can be really devastating. The, the third bummer, dude, is that yesterday is gone. You may be thinking, man, I wish that when I was in my 20s, I didn't party as much. I wish that I had just, you know, saved enough money and worked harder so I'd be in a better spot in my 30s and my 40s rather than dealing with the stuff from that time. You can never get that back. Bummer, dude. Not only that, there's the idea that you are not in control. You can do everything right. In, in all of your life. You can do uh, everything right in church, everything right in the home, in your business, but still stuff happens. That's out of your control. The economy takes a downturn. You lose your job. Someone gets sick in your family, and your marriage struggles. Your kids struggle. You're not in control. And finally, is that one, you will die one day. We can just stop the sermon right there. Very cheerful, right? You will, you will die one day. And you have no control, whether it's going to be in your 20s or in your 80s, while you sleep around your family and friends. We don't have control. And what happens is, is sometimes if a couple of these happen to us, or they happen to people around us, they can kind of create this lens in which we see the world around us. We start to see the world around us as this dark and hostile place where God is out to get us. Nothing is ever going to go the way we want it to. And it can leave us feeling fear and anxiety and insecurity. But, you know, that's not what God has called us to have. That, that's not where God has called us to be. But sometimes when we have these lenses on, it's hard not to build patterns and habits to kind of help us cope with the pain and the brokenness inside us. In fact, I really saw this pretty starkly in, in my first job. You know, I had this job, and I really wanted to do well. I wanted to grow the thing and, and do super well. And uh, for me, you know, I don't know what your job or what your space is, but for me that was uh, as a youth pastor. And so I had this group of teenagers, and I wanted to grow this thing and blow it up and, and reach people for Jesus and all this stuff. And um, so I had these student leaders that I sat down with over Starbucks, and I was like, all right, guys, um, we need to invite your friends. You guys need to go out and start inviting. And they kind of looked at me, and they're like, um, we don't really want to do that. I go, well, why? Well, we kind of like it when our church friends and our school friends are separate. We don't like to mix them. Uh, we we kind of like to kind of keep it that way. And I go, well, don't you want them 
to kind of know Jesus and, and, and find hope for their lives. And they just kind of looked at me as they took another sip of their Frappuccino. I was like, okay, that's fine. Uh, so, you know, as a youth pastor, you know, I'm angry at them. I'm blaming them. This, they're the reason why we're not going after the stuff we need to go after. And so all this is going on in my head. And so I'm thinking, okay, I know what I need to do. I need to talk to the parents. That's right. That'll fix it. And so I, I get lunch with one of the dads. And I'm like, hey, listen, you know, you know I've talked to your son. He's, this is where he's at with his faith. I mean, do you want to, what else can we do to, to help him out? And he's like, well, listen, it's really a busy, it's a busy time, right? We've got We've got baseball, we've got advanced placement exams, we've got extracurricular stuff. You know, we can't really fit the church thing right now. And I go, well, don't you care about, you know, your son's spirituality? Don't you care that he's, he's not reaching his friends? Don't you care about growing my youth group, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he looks at me and goes, bummer, dude. So, and so, you know, and this is, this is kind of our natural reaction, right? I just get angry at the parents. It's their fault that we're not growing. It's the kids' fault. They're, it's their fault that we're not growing. It's the leader. So I was literally blaming everybody, and it never actually occurred to me that maybe it's my fault. Maybe I had a role. Actually, I had the role to kind of help take us to the next level where we needed to go. But I was so fixated on blaming. I was so fixated on, on putting on other people. The more I blamed, the worse it got. The more I blamed, the, the less power I had in my own mind to make any changes. And that's where I had this revelation, which is really our first idea, which is this. You can't blame your way to freedom. You can't blame your way to freedom. The more you blame, the more you kind of build up these walls of bitterness and resentment that become your own prison. You can't blame your way to freedom. But did you ever wonder, where do we get this kind of natural default to blame other people for things? Right? Where, where did that come from? It's your parents' fault. That's whose fault it is. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's not really your parents' fault. Um, in a sense, I'm, 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 it's your spiritual parents' fault, Adam and Eve. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open up to Genesis chapter 3, where we're kind of going to see the root of, of blame in our life. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can follow along on the screen here. Here's what's kind of interesting, is that God had just created this beautiful world. It's lush. It's, it's, it's brand new. And, and he, he creates this beautiful, lush garden. Think like the Duke Estate or think the Rampo uh, Reserve or the Watching Reservation, whatever it may be. And, and he creates this beautiful garden. And he places the first man and the first woman there, Adam and Eve. And so they're in this garden, and, and, and God says to them, you can eat from any tree of the garden. You can pet any animal that you want. You can tend and steward and make this thing uh, great. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to stay away from that tree over there, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just avoid that. And they're like, this is cool. We're fine with it. They don't even give it another look. But then it says that the serpent, Satan, evil incarnate himself, shows up in the garden. So he shows up in the garden, and he finds Eve, and it says that he deceives her. And he makes her take another look at the tree. And this is what happened. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and what? Ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. So right now, we are seeing sin enter into the world. Now, sin is kind of going, any, is any thought or action that's contrary to the ways and thoughts of God. And so God had literally laid out a pathway of, of joy and happiness and peace and union, connection, real connection with, with, with man and with God and with creation and, and the environment. And then when they sinned, it created this rift. First, the rift is between man and God. Second, then, is the rift between man 
and other men. And, and we see this in verse 7, where we see shame enter into the created order. It says this, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. That's an interesting realization, right? So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So for the first time, Adam and Eve looked at each other and looked at themselves and had this realization, I'm deficient. There's something wrong with me. I, I'm dysfunctional in my very being. Shame had entered into the world, dividing them from one another. You see, there's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says, I made a mistake. The mistake's not me. It's, it's something out there. Godly guilt leads us back to God, back into relationship and union with him. You know what shame says? Shame says, I am the mistake. There's something wrong with me. There's, there's something broken with me. There's something dysfunctional with my very essence, my very being. And so this is the place where Adam and Eve find themselves. So what do they do? They grab some twigs. They grab some leaves. They cover themselves up, thinking that's what's going to fix the problem. And we do the same, don't we? We try to cover up our shame, whether it's through our, our possessions, our nice cars, our nice houses, or whatever it may be. We try to cover up the shame that we feel, but yet it doesn't do it long term. We still are confronted with this sense of dysfunction that we can't seem to get out of. And so God comes into the garden. God wants to hang out with Adam and Eve. He's got the sweet tea and he's got some cookies. He's like, hey guys, let's hang out. But they're hiding. Because one of the things that shame does is it drives us away from God. And so they're, they're hiding from him, and, and God knows there's something up. And, and so he finally finds them, and he, and he says this to Adam. He says, Adam, did you eat from the tree? And this is Adam's response, and this is kind of where, where the blame game begins. It says this, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Notice that Adam, where he puts the blame, God, it's the woman you gave me. No amens, guys. Easy. <laughs> God, it's the woman. If she wasn't here, she wouldn't have been deceived. She wouldn't have gotten the fruit. All her fault, right? It's all the woman's fault. But he doesn't just blame Eve. He also blames God. He's like, God, if you hadn't put the woman here, technically this is your fault, God. This, is, this was your fault. You put the woman here, so this is how this all happened. I'm sure God's just going, okay, interesting. He looks over to Eve. Eve, how could you? What happened? And she says this, the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. Th th that's how this happened. And all of a sudden, this vicious cycle of blame shifting started in the garden, continues on with us today. And in fact, we see kind of three big ideas from this. And the first is this, is that shame plus sin equals blame. Sin plus shame equals blame. And so in many ways, in our spiritual DNA, uh, blaming is hardwired into us. It's something that we do. It's like a default because the bottom line is this, is that blame discharges pain. Because of shame, we feel this pain and we feel this kind of uh, angst or anguish in us. So when we can blame it on someone else and, and shift it to someone else, we don't have to deal with the reason where it comes from. We don't have to deal with our response because it's someone else's fault. Don't we do this? It's the Republicans' fault. That's why everything's falling apart. No, it's the Democrats' fault. Yeah, it's, they're the ones that did. They messed up the whole country. You see, we don't have to teach us how to blame. We just kind of do it naturally, right? In fact, you know, my kids are like ninjas at this. Like the other day, you know, I, I get breakfast ready for our kids in the morning, and so I get them their waffle, I get them their milk, and I said, all right, guys, 
eat your food in the kitchen table, and then you can go to the TV room. So what do you think they do, right? They take their food into the, into the TV room, right? And then they spill the milk on the floor, and i got to clean the milk up, and i got to discipline them. Like, guys, you shouldn't be doing that. And one of my kids, who will remain nameless, goes up to me and goes, you know, Dad, technically this is your fault because the cups you gave us are spillable. Okay, so, you know, I saw this was a teachable moment, so I said, you sinner, let me tell you something. <laughs> I didn't have to teach them to do that. They just did that on their own. It just, just kind of came, it just flowed naturally. Why? Because it's part of our spiritual DNA. But here's the thing, even if God allowed painful circumstances to come into your life, even if it was someone else's fault, they hurt you, they wounded you, and you're still trying to deal with the, with the fallout from that. And even if Satan is going hard against you, you have power and ownership over your response. Now, please hear me. I know, I've heard many of your stories, stories of abuse and pain and suffering that people have inflicted on you. I in no way want to minimize that. I in no way want to say, let's just pretend that never happened. What I want to do is have us face the mess underneath our couch and say, that's not my identity. I'm moving into the future. Because that's where God has called you to be. Because taking ownership means this. It means I stop blaming God and others for my circumstances. That's our second big idea. I stop blaming God and others for my circumstances. You know, um, so my wife and I, we got into a freeway group, and uh, I love our group. Here's a picture of them over here. They're all very attractive and kind and wonderful, and they let us in their group. It was very nice of them. And so uh, uh, we're in the group, and I'll be honest, you know, um, I've been in a lot of groups before. I'm thinking, you know, do I really want to be super, super honest? I just met all these people. I mean, they're amazing, but, you know, all this. Maybe what I'll do is instead of giving them, like, a cushions full of stuff, I'll give them a throw pillow's worth of stuff, right? You know, they'll, you know, I'll still be able to share and be honest, but it's not going to be like, you know, the full kilter. They're going to see all my, you know, my foibles and whatnot. But I was just kind of praying through that. I really felt like God was saying, no, dude, you, you can't be free unless you're really honest and you're going to go for it. And so I was like, all right, God, I'll do it. And in our last group, I was kind of sharing about how uh, I was having a hard time forgiving someone. It's a friend of mine, uh, someone I had a lot of respect for and, was very gifted, and um, just really loved their friendship. And uh, I found out that they were basically talking behind my back. And, uh, you know, I don't love conflict. Uh, I like to deny my pain. You know, I, I want everyone to like me because, you know, so, so I would basically deny it and minimize it. So, yeah, it doesn't bother me. You know, he's, he's working through something right now. It's not my thing. And, and, and so I just kind of minimized it. And uh, it, it's very similar to, to, like, if you ever kick a beach ball at the beach and then you shove it underneath the water, you know what happens? It pops up somewhere, right? And so uh, I found out that I was kind of bleeding all over other people. In fact, uh, whenever I had conversations with mutual friends, I would, I would subtly bring it up. You know, I'd, I'd subtly kind of talk about the conversation. Like, oh, it doesn't bother me. I know he needs help. You know, that's kind of how I would phrase it. And I would, I would rehearse these conversations in my own mind with him. It's like if I ever saw him, like, I would say this, and he'd say this, and I'd say that. It kind of became this big thing that literally occupied all my mental energy. And finally, you know, I'm with my wife. We're getting ready for dinner. I'm, like, setting the table, and uh, I'm in one of, my, one of my rants. And she goes, I don't think you're over this. I go, what are you talking about? Well, you keep bringing it up a lot. Maybe you've got some issues there. <laughs> of course, you know, 
I'm a pastor, so I get super defensive. How can you say that, you know? Uh, don't you know that I, I know how to forgive? I forgive like the best of them. It's in the past. I've got a new future, and, and it's fine. She's like, yeah, right. I go, you know, that's very hurtful to me. You know, I'm, I'm going off. I, you know, you know, you're supposed to be like my, you know, my best friend. Don't you see that I'm beyond it, and, and I can move forward, and things are great? And she just kind of looks at me and goes, bummer, dude. I'm just like, but, you know, eventually, you know, I was able to see what my wife saw, like, from a, from a million miles away. I was not over it. I had denied, and I had minimized the pain, and, and, I, and I, I was like, you know, it's, and I tried to make it did not bother me. But the truth of the matter is, even though it wasn't me, I didn't do, do it, I still had to own my response to it. And so, you know, even though I wanted to blame others, I wanted to blame God, or I wanted to blame everyone else for a situation, I had to own it. I had to own it. I had to stop blaming God and others for my own circumstances. Because here's the thing. Blame doesn't make the pain go away long term. In fact, it can kind of go away for a little bit, but, it does, it, it, but it's still there. The pain's still there. The issues are still there because we haven't really dealt with, with the roots of the issue. Which kind of brings us to the third idea of this, which is this. It may not be my fault, but it is my responsibility. It may not be my fault, but it is my responsibility. When I think of this idea of ownership, I, I think of two types of people. I, I think of under-owners, or another way to, to look at that is victims, people who have really been hurt and they've been victimized. But then something shifts where that victimization actually becomes the identity. It's kind of like this. If you have room in your notes, go ahead and click, up, click your pen on, and um, why don't you draw a beach ball? Let's do that. Nice, beautiful beach ball. Then we'll turn it into Pac-Man, you know. And then we'll make it into a pizza pie. There we go. You're all artists. And so, you know, the biggest pie slice here is when you have, are an under-owner and you've got, like, victimhood written all over you, the focus is on how I've been hurt. I've been hurt. Which, again, not to minimize anything, this could be true. Completely valid. You've been hurt. But when it becomes an identity, what happens is we minimize the other two pieces, which is how... I've hurt others and how I've hurt myself. Because, you know, we hurt others through our choices. We also hurt ourselves because of our choices. And if we can't see this because we're so blinded by how we've been hurt, we end up causing all sorts of havoc and pain to people that are close to us. You know, uh, oftentimes an under-owner will say, you know, it's not my fault that I look at porn. My wife's just not physically available to me. It's better to do that than actually, you know, do stuff, right? You know, it's, it's not my fault that I drink. You know, my boss is a jerk. That, that's why, I, when I, and I have a, after I have a long day, I just need to numb out. And you know what? Yeah, I have some networking things, and there's alcohol there, but it, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't change my mood. It's just how it is. It, it's my boss's fault. That's, he makes me drink. Or, you know, it's not my fault that I overeat. I'm, I'm really busy, you know. I, I have a lot of traveling to do. The kids are crazy. My, my spouse is just, is, just goes nuts. I, you know, it, it's, it's comfort. It's not as bad as other things, right? But when you're an under-owner, when you focus on how you've been hurt and you justify and say it's someone else's fault, you know what you do? You take power away from yourself to make changes. Because if the problem's always out there, then you can't do anything to change it. But if you're not an under-owner, maybe you're like me. Maybe you're an over-owner, an over-owner. So an over-owner, you know, same kind of thing. We got our, 
our beach ball, we got our Pac-Man, then we got our pizza slice here. But the over-owner, this is kind of our problem, because it's kind of where I can tend to go, is we focus on how we've hurt others. Maybe it's something that we did in our past that still kind of haunts us, or, or, or maybe it's a perception. We didn't even do anything, but we, we get the sense that we've hurt others, and this becomes a lens in which we see the world. We, we just keep blaming ourselves and pouring more pain and, and anguish on ourselves, but we minimize and deny how we've been hurt, how others have hurt us, or even how we hurt ourselves. Because we don't even realize this, but from our decisions or lack of decisions, or from letting ourselves see this lens that we don't actually deal with how others have hurt us or how we've hurt ourselves through our own bad decisions that we've made. I once talked to a woman who told me that she uh, caught her husband in an affair. And uh, when she sat down to confront him, what he said was, it's not my fault. I'm a sex addict. And you're not beautiful enough or adventurous enough for me. So, so of course I have to look in other places. This poor woman put all that on herself. And she said, it's my fault. It, it's my fault. It's, this is why my marriage is falling apart. And, and so she went and started getting plastic surgery to, to try to make herself look more beautiful. And then she was going to the gym every day, sometimes several times a day, and she was starving herself, trying to make herself enough for her husband so that he'd want her. She thought, if I can fix this, then things will be better. But things didn't get better. Because then He'd come home, and maybe the house wasn't where he wanted it to be, and he'd start yelling at her. And she'd take that on herself, too. It was her fault. You know, I should have managed my time better. Or if the kids were behaving, he's like, why can't you keep our kids under control? What's wrong with you? Oh, my gosh, I need to, I need to do a better job taking care of the kids and, and making the house right. And all these things kept piling on her and piling on her. And she was living in complete, complete pain and burden so what's her pathway to freedom? How does she break through this vicious cycle of fear and insecurity and, and find true hope? And it all begins when she makes one decision of ownership. And that's this. Just she needs to own the fact that there's a God that loves her unconditionally no matter what. She needs to own the fact that there is a God that has loved and accepted and adopted her and desires her and calls her beautiful just as she is. Because when she can feel the love of God and it's come at a bedrock level where literally every atom and cell of her body is just uh, saturated in the love of God, then she can finally say no to him. And say, you know what? I'm going to own my own insecurities and fear, but I'm not owning your addiction. I'm not owning your dysfunction. I'm not owning your abuse. She can own her response to the situation. That's what it means to take ownership. We can own the response to a situation. So whether you're an under-owner or an over-owner, there's actually a bigger question that we need to grapple with, and we see this question in John chapter 5. I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to John chapter 5 with me. It's also in your notes. It's also going to be on the screen. But let me uh, set the stage for you a little bit here. In John 5, uh, Jesus, uh, last week Pastor Tim talked about how, how Jesus healed uh, a blind man. This week we're going to look at how Jesus healed a crippled man. And this man has been at this temple for probably o almost 40 years of his life, uh, just begging there and just kind of um, trying to get into this pool where if he gets into this pool, he gets healed. And this is where we find that Jesus catches up to him. Jesus finds out this man's story, and he pursues this man. And uh, Jesus actually asks him this question. Here's what it is. He says this. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, 
do you want to get well? Now, you know, when I first read this, I was like, what, Jesus? This is a stupid question. Of course he wants to get well. Why, why else would he be there? But, you know, the longer I do ministry and work with people, I realize that not everybody wants to get well. You know, we're in this, these situations, aren't we, that are painful, that are difficult, things that others have done to us, and we go, God, I need you to heal me. God, I need you to get me out of this, this, this relationship or this, this uh, struggle or this health crisis. And we say, God, heal me, heal me. But then Jesus actually pauses and looks right at us and says, do you really want to be healed? Do you know what it means to be healed? Think about this, this one crippled man. His entire life, 40 years of his life, have been all about being crippled. About, you know, not even being able to walk with his hands. All of his friends are crippled, and that's kind of his community. He's been living at this place. He's begging. That's kind of been his source of income. It's his entire identity. It's in his entire way of life. And Jesus asks him that hard question, do you want to be healed? Because if we're really honest, some of us, we've learned how to cope with our dysfunction, haven't we? We've learned how to make it work for us. We've learned how to, how to live with it. And to say, to be healed actually may mean we have to take it off. And we wonder what's left after that. And we see this a little bit in the man's response. He says this, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So notice that this man blames two people. You know, no one's there to help me, Jesus. You know, I, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm here, I'm go, trying to go for it, but no one's helping me, Jesus. It's, it's someone out there, someone should be helping me, but it's, 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 it's someone else out there. And then when I finally get close, Jesus, you know what happens? Someone cuts me off. Someone cuts in line. See, this guy, it's so, it's so interesting, right? Maybe you know people like this where uh, they're upset because no one's there to help him, and then when you do try to help them, they're mad at you for, like, not helping them the right way. And, and so this is what's going on here. This, this man is just so wounded. He's not just crippled physically. He's actually crippled emotionally. And so Jesus, who is our healer, doesn't just want to heal his body, but he wants to do something even gracious. So he gifts this man with a beautiful choice that we see in here. It says this, Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. Here's what I find so amazing is that Jesus didn't argue with him about whose fault it was. Was it God's fault? Was it his parents' fault? Was it his whatever? He, he didn't get into that with him. He just simply looked at him, God enfleshed, and said, get up, pick up your stuff, own it, and walk. You see, what I love about this passage is that, you know, Jesus knows that it's not going to be enough if Jesus just kind of says, you're healed. Jesus knows that this guy actually has to take that step of faith and, and own it. He's got to actually physically pick up his mat and feel the life-giving muscle kind of come together and move. And that's where this man takes a step of courage. And he says this, that at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. I'm not going to tell you that this is going to be easy. Some of you've experienced hurt and you've had years and decades where it's kind of become your identity. But if you want the limitless freedom that Jesus has for you, what that means is that you're going to have to pick up your mat and walk. You see, for this man, what it meant was he had to deny his identity as disabled and find a new identity in Christ. 
for this man and for us, what it means is whatever we've identified ourselves, whatever victim ways we've been victimized, we need to throw that off and say, that's not who I am anymore. I belong to Jesus. I'm fully accepted and loved by the Son of God. But you know what's even more interesting here? This man, and this is what God is saying to us, is he wants to take your mess today and make that your message that you take to other people. Because I also notice here in this story that this man did not pick up his mat on his own power, right? He could do it on his own power. That's where he was right. He needed the power of God. Hear this. You cannot own your stuff and move forward unless the power of God is fused in your life that can give you that power. Amen? You need the power of God to move forward into limitless freedom. You need the power of God to own your mistakes. You need the power of God to own your regrets and the lies that you believe. You need the power of God to own it, take responsibility, and move forward. You need the power of God to lean into pain, lean into discomfort, lean into the areas that you've been so busy hiding and trying to make pretty, but now it's time to move into it so that Jesus can bring real healing and real hope. Amen? Amen. You cannot do it on your own. You need the power of God. We need the Spirit of God to come on us and give us power. And that's what Jay and Catherine learned. Jay was studying to be a lawyer. They're living on the beach in Malibu, the perfect life. And then a circumstance that was out of their control took over. And they had a tough decision to make. Will they go down the road of blaming and bitterness, or will they own it, and move into the future and the destiny that God has for them. Let's watch. I had what's called an arterial venous malformation, which is a condition in your brain that you're born with. It's congenital. And it grew and grew, and one day it ruptured. And when I was 26 years old, I had a massive brainstem stroke and nearly died. God saved my life. And in so doing, a lot was taken away. Life was wonderful before the stroke. I just had a baby, James, six months before, and we were living on the beach in Malibu. Jay was in law school, and life was fun and easy, and we loved our church. We're deeply plugged into our community there, and we're just really living out our wildest dreams. I was concerned, because Catherine had felt a little strange that morning. And I went to the other room as my son was taking a nap and I was working on a paper and I heard Catherine cry out. I ran to her side and she was collapsed onto the ground and non-responsive. So I called 911 and the paramedics quickly came and realized she needed to be taken to a hospital immediately. And she was wheeled out on a stretcher from that place we had called our first home and she would never return again there. AVM, it's called, and it's a very rare condition that Catherine didn't even know she had until that moment when it finally ruptured. And the pressure building in her brain was so great that um, there was almost no chance for her to survive. And in that moment, having this idyllic, perfect life with so much hope and expectation for our future turned upside down. 
my motherhood was perhaps the saddest and hardest thing above all other issues I faced throughout my ordeal. Before the stroke, I was able to have six months and five days of just pure joy with James. I was just a happy mother enjoying new life with the baby. Once the stroke happened, I was not able to really engage my son. I was not able to be much of a mother at all. Now today, while the picture looks different, I'm there, I'm with him, and I'm able to take care of him again. And it is the greatest joy in all of this is knowing that I can be his mommy again. We have been very blessed to suffer greatly at a young age because it informs the way we live the rest of our life. The future is definitely uncertain, but whose is it? We're living out a picture of what, if we're all honest, each of our lives looks like. We don't know what tomorrow will hold, if it will be the best day of our life or the last day of our life. Our circumstances and the storms that might surround our lives nearly as important as our turning our eyes towards Him. And in that dependence, in that trust, in that tension between an all-powerful, loving God and a broken world, we found hope. And in that hope, we found our identity. one line that I just can't, I can't, uh, I just can't shake it. It's like, we have been blessed in our young age to suffer so greatly. I'm just thinking, how, when you lose so much, how, how can you say those words? If you, if you talk to Jane and Catherine today, they'll tell you, we don't know if tomorrow's going to be one of the worst days of our life or not. The future is so uncertain, we don't know. And yet, for some reason, they've rooted their identity, not in their circumstance, not in the disease, but they've rooted it in hope. They've rooted it in Christ. Because they can't change their circumstances, but they've chosen to own it. They can't change anything that's happening. But here's the deal. God may not heal Catherine. He may not be able to change, the, he, he may choose not to change the situation. He may not change, choose to change your situation, but he's changing you. He's transforming you. He's making you into a new creation. He's making you into someone who can go and help others as you own your pain. Your path to freedom comes with these three words. I own it. Would you say that with me? I own it. It doesn't mean that what happened to you was okay. It doesn't mean that you haven't suffered. It doesn't mean that you're not in pain. But what it does mean is you're not gonna let that define you, but you'll let it refine you. I own it. I own the divorce. It wasn't something I wanted, but I'm going to own my response to it. I own my response to 
betrayal. I own my response to jealousy. I own my response to unforgiveness. I own it. That will take you on to the freeway. Jesus came to set you free, but it begins when you say, I'm going to take responsibility for my response. I can't change the circumstances. I'm not in control, but I'm going to own my part in all this. You know, when we decide to own it, it means we're going to stop being injustice collectors. When we say that we're going to own it, it means that I'm going to stop blaming everyone around me and own my peace to it. When, when we say that we own it, it means that we need to forgive. For some of you, that means you need to forgive yourself. You need to let yourself off the hook. I own it. You know, um, in our couch cushions at our home, you know what we have in there a lot of times? Broken crayons. And, uh, you know, our, our lives can feel like broken crayons, things that were done to us and we kind of look at our lives, we look at what's happened to us, and we're thinking, can God actually use this brokenness? Can, can God take the ugly, dark things in my life and do something good with them? You know what's so interesting about broken crayons is that um, even if they've been crushed or stripped or whatever, you know what's so great about crayons? They still color. So God can take the broken things in your life the broken places, the places of betrayal, the places of abuse, the places of pain, the things that you thought, this is going to mess my life up, this is going to crush everything, this is going to destroy me, the abuse, all those things that seem to have made your life barren and broken, and he makes fruit out of those places. He brings life out of things that are lifeless. He makes beautiful things out of us. It begins when we can confess those three words, I own it. Would you stand and pray with me? For some of you today, you're like, I'm, I'm done, Nathan. I need to own it. And so we can't own it unless we have the power of God literally infusing us to move in that direction. And so, now, we're not just going to pray, but we're going to make a declaration. We're going to make a line in the sand that says, I choose this day to own my response to move into the limitless future. Amen? Say these words with me. Jesus, I declare that today I am done blaming. I am done blaming you. I am done blaming others. I'm done blaming myself. I own it. By your power, I will confess my sin. I will own my mistakes. I will own my circumstances. I own them because you can transform them. I refuse to let the past define me. Instead, it will refine me. I declare that I am loved of God, accepted by God, chosen by God, desired by God, and I am created to do incredible things for his kingdom. I ask God to give me courage to 
own it and move forward to a limitless future.